Welcome to Sci-Fi Tech Talk, the podcast where we explore the technology of sci-fi. I'm Julie Keel, and with me today is Jeff Sire. Hello, everybody. And Mike McPeak. Hello. This episode, we're going to be covering a 1902 classic film, A Trip to the Moon. And it's it's a very short film with a very short description, which is, A group of astronomers go on an expedition to the moon. Because that's about all there is to it. Yeah, but, it actually takes longer to read the Wikipedia page than it does to watch the the movie. Yeah, it it's everybody who listens to this podcast ought to be familiar with this one. I mean, the iconic um, you know bullet in the eye of the man in the moon made of cheese um, is like a completely ubiquitous. It's right up there with "Beam Me Up, Scotty." I mean, everybody on the planet, even if you're not a nerd has probably seen that. Um, but, yeah, this this film is interesting in so many ways. First off, it's a cute little story. I mean, it's not, there's nothing, well, we're, we're sitting here like, what, 115 years later looking at this, going, you know, yeah, it's, it's still kind of cute. Does it hold up? Hell no, it's a silent movie. <laughs> um, but <laughs> it does. It does, if you consider it, as a silent movie. I mean, the story is still, you know, a bunch of people come up with the idea to go to the moon and return safely again. Um, so, you know, well, the, the story is still one that we're playing off of today. You know, people go, go travel in space, <clears throat> discover new things, encounter aliens, and come back home to, you know, praise and adoration. Well, yeah, and scientifically, this movie um, is you know it's a, I like the movie, but scientifically, it's a everything is laughable in here. Um, you know, this is one of those things you just set aside reality and just go with the story here because they're going to they're going to the moon by climbing into this big bullet. They're getting shot out of this big gun. By the time you get to the moon, the acceleration, the deacceleration, there would be red goop dripping out of this thing uh, because people are getting smashed around in there. They get, they climb out. There's atmosphere on the moon. There's creatures on the moon. Like I say, it's, it's all uh, fantastical stuff. But I think what makes this movie, you know, interesting and important is, um, I'm I think I didn't check it to be absolutely sure, but I think this is the first science fiction film yes. ever made. Yeah. And a lot of the techniques that this guy used as far as storytelling and even some of the filming techniques that he used, um, I don't know if he quite pioneered all of them, but he certainly uh, made them more popular and a lot of people copied him. So from that standpoint, uh, the storytelling and the filming uh, techniques and everything, uh, I think this is a, a very important film for science fiction and for probably all of film. Yeah. But, but you know, this this film is laughable in some ways, the same way I think 150 years from now they would look at our sci-fi and think that that's laughable. The, the fact that, that this is all speculation on their part, like all that they had done in 1902 was rocketry. They didn't know anything more uh, than that. Like, and, and at that time, like when you go back in, even to the 1960s and you, you hear them talking about what they think on Mars was, they were still speculation that there might be plant life and stuff because they, they knew there were – they could see that there were canals and they were thinking, well – you know, and at the turn of the century, when this was 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 uh, 
uh, when this movie came out, I know that there was speculation that there might be the, um, like cultural life. They might be like people like us on Mars, probably not the moon because nothing ever moves there. But like they're just looking at it speculatively of like, OK, well, if we were going to go to the moon, well, we know about rockets. So we'll make this ship that sort of looks like a rocket. Oh, we'll fire it out of gun and stuff like that. And what I'm saying is, like, 150 years from now, if they look at our science fiction at a, at a time in human history when we are maybe traveling back and forth to Mars or back and forth to the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, they will probably look at, like, Star Trek, like, what are those, like, stupid-looking spaceships? How ridiculous that right, is. Right, right. Or, or the things that are going on. Like, look at, uh, you know, this this ship, where this uh, movie where they're having a space uh fight and they're flying around they'd be paced in there you know like they'd look at i i think that we we have this kind of i think not just for sci-fi but for any sort of history we have this kind of like level of snobbery where we look back and it's not really snobbery in a bad way but it's just like oh they you know those guys just were so naive we're naive too you know you know like we don't even know what we don't know in a lot of cases. Right. And this particular movie was not meant to be realistic at all. Oh. Matter of fact, it was meant to somewhat satirize science and some of the things that were going on in the 1902s. Um, so, I mean, not only is it funny from a 2017 perspective, it was also kind of funny in a 1902s perspective, they were essentially mocking science. Um, so, th- yeah. And you have you have uh, like uh, the three of us. Like the three of us are all English speakers. <laughs> I have like the added benefit of like you know a little knowledge of French Canadian culture and by extrapolation French culture. They have a, a far more a better appreciation of farce than most uh, English speaking cultures do. So I think. You're right. Like that's this is just kind of like okay, this is going to be a joke. This is going to be funny, and uh, we're not trying to uh, make this realistic. Yeah, no, I mean it definitely was meant to be, uh, you know, kind of a uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Kind of the you know, you science types think you know we're going to be able to do this that's such bs we're just going to make fun of it you know which obviously um 115 years later we're like um not exactly <laughs> so um but yeah this this particular movie i mean just the movie itself much less what it depicts is is um so important in the history of film so important in the history of sci-fi um it's just it doesn't really matter even what the story is or how good it was done or or all the the um i guess it, the, to some extent the filmmaking was kind of important because it, he created or uh produ- you know incorporated a bunch of different techniques in this particular movie but the fact that it, it this was actually one of the first silent movies to kind of tell a story um because up until then it was kind of more like just shorts and you know perhaps newsish or you know just film was so new it was like we're just going to set a camera out on main street and film 10 minutes there and send that off you know as um 
you know, film because we just want, people are talking about moving pictures. People just want to see moving pictures. They don't need a story. Um, remember World War II with its, you know, news footage, which it, I still consider to be kind of a very fr- primitive type of film, is still, what, 30, 40 years in the future. Um, so this yeah. thing, I mean, trying to get in the context of 1902 to see this movie. Something in Wikipedia was saying, you know, Wikipedia, the source of all knowledge, was saying that um, when it was released, they were having a hard time getting people to come to see it because it was expensive. They were charging more for this one because it was longer and it told a story. And so nobody was coming to see it. So finally they released it. They opened it up for free one night and ran it like all evening um, at one particular theater, and it was packed. And after that, then they started to be able to, you know, sell tickets to it. Um, and it became wildly popular after that. But, you know, it really, it was so groundbreaking, nobody knew what to do with it. Um, so, well, yeah. Well, that, and then the other thing about this movie is is something that, you know, they, they're still kind of fighting today, was that um, it ended up being pirated um, a lot. And I think uh, for his future films, uh, the the director, um, why am I, oh, George uh, I can't Malaise? Yeah, let's yeah, let's call him George. Do you have uh, any insight on that? M. Uh, I just can't see. M e l i e s with all the e's accented forward and backwards and upside down. Yes, melee. 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 Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of umlauts or whatever they are in there. So um, <laughs> take you. There you go. Uh, we'll call him George because I don't want to massacre his last name. Uh, anyway, so when he uh, brought films to America, he took the step of setting up a film production company or a film company anyway in America with his brother running it so that he would be able to have copyrights here in this country. So, I mean, piracy is not anything that this cool tech people thought of. This was going on 115 years ago because he'd have his film copied and reproduced and people just basically blatantly ripped off the idea of his film and made their own movies so it's a, not a new concept yeah yeah it's um the okay let's go back and talk about the story of a trip to the moon le voyage dans la lune um it, you know sure it's comical actually you know a bunch of guys in a in an what i would consider a medieval um, room, you know, with, with a chalkboard saying, let's, let's go to the moon, which honestly, you know, this was, as much as this is a film from 1902, this describes the 1960s. <laughs> it's a bunch in of more people. Ways, I know. It. <laughs> yeah. In more ways than one. But, yeah, uh, trippy, trippy dippy. But um, yeah, there's like, let's go to the moon. Um, and, uh, you know, the, um, we're going to build a rocket ship, and in this case, I mean, it truly was a tin can. I mean, they were riveting it together. It has, like you say, zero um, science behind it. There's no way. I mean, the fact that they'd be goo on takeoff, um, also no, no vacuum of space. There was no pressurization or air supply or anything. So, yeah, food. They didn't, they didn't include food. They did bring blankets, though. They actually um, got to the moon and got out of the capsule, of course, without any spacesuit and laid on the... the ground and covered themselves up in a blanket and started to snow so okay just yeah no one thing we did know back then and i don't think this is stretching it too much people had been staring at the moon through telescopes for centuries at this point i'm pretty sure we knew that it didn't snow on the moon so (laughs) 
Yeah, um, that's just kind of artistic license, and that's—I mean—that's cool. I, I find it interesting that we break the prime directive on the very first, you know, science fiction film. Um, they go to uh, a, an alien planet called the Moon, and they discover aliens there. And the first thing they do is kill them, um, and then capture <laughs> one and bring it back, you know, and treat it like like they were doing with people in 1902. Um, you would capture people and bring them to the the sideshow, and do you know the bearded lady and the man, the pygmy from the dark darkest Africa and all that kind of stuff. So, culturally, that's really kind of appropriate for that time period. I would I mean, or common appropriate, we could argue, but it was probably pretty common in that time frame. Speaking of that time frame too, okay, all the girls um, were were dancing. They were the Marines who were seeing off the the ship and whatever. But how 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 uh, risque? How nuts was it that they were like wearing like shorts and pants in 1902? I I had to think that was kind of yeah like you say probably kind of risque because they were kind of I for the time scantily clad by today's standards they were like probably overdressed but you saw thighs you saw ankles yeah uh, oh my and but I, that was I, also uh, this was like cabaret yeah. France right so this probably this film probably would have been seen as like you know all those uh, risque French people okay because I I know like in the 1920s. You know that would not have been quite as scandalous. And yes, I get. And these the actors for this were taken from um, French, you know, plays. They were stage actors, not you know, because there weren't film actors back then. Um, so you know that may be the thing that they were used to. So, but I mean that that just absolutely struck me the very first time. It's like, wait a minute, 1902, with like you say, thighs and ankles is one thing, but thighs, whoa. Um, so yeah, and all I have to say, if that's the Marines, sign me up. Yeah, there uh, you go. <laughs> the greatest that, recruiting that, tool ever, right? Yeah, there you go. Um, what else? The, the um, I'm not. I don't. Again, this movie was actually intended to poke fun at um, some of the science and stuff going on, um, but well, the the. Um, um, professors. What? Are, what were they? Look like magicians. You know, medieval magicians with you know or wizard like hats. Alchemists yeah, or wizard hats and capes. I yeah, mean, they were Merlin, and they even gave them names. Like one of the those dudes is named Nostradamus. Um, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. So you know, again, it was it was all is this as much as this is sci-fi? To me, this feels like comedy. It feels like Spaceballs, nineteen oh two. You know, and I don't, and I, and I think that was the intention. Yeah, I, I believe so. Uh, and like I say, it's it's fun, and it's kind, of, it's a little fun to kind of make fun of the science, but that's what they were trying to do too. Uh, but you know, the thing that I'm sitting there watching the movie, and okay, you guys have fired this bullet at the moon. How do y'all plan on getting back now? And so their idea, their their plan was just to drag the bullet over the edge of the moon and fall off it. So, okay, I mean, I'm sitting there going, not a lot of planning put into this, people, but apparently they, they figured they could just fall off the moon and fall I would back just there. like to point out what we were saying earlier about, uh, you know, looking back and saying, oh, how silly this is. 
our last thing we did was Star Trek Beyond, and they dragged a spaceship off a cliff, <laughs> and it fell down, and then they flew away. Okay. Touche. Like point that out. <laughs> yes. Good point. Uh, so yeah, we we don't dare make too much fun of it. Uh, and even then, in the movie, I'm kind of in Star Trek. I'm going, okay, whatever. I'll I'm in for a penny. I'm in for a pound. Let's just go for the ride. But yeah, so I I don't dare make too much fun of it. But uh, yeah, like I say, you know, at least you know the, the starship. You know, you figured there's some propulsion to it. You have this bullet laying on the moon. How do you get to to go back? But yeah, so they just push it off the edge of the moon because that totally works. And then you know they they fall back through space, and then they, you know, I, I guess. I won't say that it, it, it's groundbreaking what they predicted, but they, you know, splashed out in the ocean, which is the American way of, you know, uh, coming back from moon landings. The Russians, you know, they land on solid ground, but, you know, the Americans, we splash land in the ocean. So I guess that was sort of a prediction. Uh, I kind of thought that was pretty, pretty good, considering like this is 60, what, 67 years before they flew to the moon for real. And they, because I don't think that, if if you were making this in 1902, I don't think it would be intuitive to you that like, oh yeah, this thing would probably land back in the ocean. That, I, yeah, I think that was kind of well, uh, and I'm not familiar with these, the, but they they claim that um, the the ideas in this were pretty much stolen from Jules Verne and H. G. Wells. I think was that was it H. G. Wells? Yeah, um, yeah. And so maybe those ideas came from those books. Uh, possibly. Yeah, and, and I was looking to the, see. It might be the case, too, where science fiction predicts science, where, you know, NASA was sitting around going, how are we going to get these back? And somebody said, well, there's this old movie where they landed in the water. Maybe we should try that. Uh, well, yeah, here we go. George himself credits Jules Verne's uh, From the Earth to the Moon and Around the Moon. Uh, uh, from the Earth to the Moon was 1865 and Around the Moon was 1870. So he credits... Uh, those two books with some of his inspiration for this. And I think somewhere in there, uh, there was H.G. Wells mentioned somewhere too. Yeah. Yeah. And then <laughs> the aliens on the moon. Okay. Let's, before we drop the return trip from the moon, um, obviously there's zero distance between the moon and the earth and it's always got atmosphere. Um, okay. But <laughs> just, yeah. And because the, one of the guys returns, one of the guys and one of the aliens return on the outside of the ship. They're not even in the ship. One's hanging on by a rope. The other grabbed it, <laughs> you know. So there's that. But, yeah. But the um, the aliens that were on the moon, too, were um, weird. Um. <laughs> I, I think, though, like, if you're in a world uh, where nobody has ever left the Earth's atmosphere, right? it's a... It's tough to imagine that there's a place that there's an end to the True. Earth's atmosphere. True. Right? I don't know it's if easy we had for that us science. To look back. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. I'm sure we did. Yeah. Like this would have been still at a time when they believed that because uh, this is before Einstein's relativity and everything. So they thought that um, everything was suspended in ether. Uh, but I don't think they thought that that was like atmosphere. It was just some kind of substance that everything was kind of held in. Um, because that was the only way that explained how uh, uh, the things that the stuff that Einstein stalled with re with relativity. That was the only thing that explained that light had a speed of had a speed and um, that kind of stuff. Right. Okay. That. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
but I don't. I I'm not sure what they thought the ether was, but they they thought it was some sort of substance. Maybe they did think it was like a, an atmosphere that just went all the way to the moon and planets and everything. But you know, it's, what's interesting about this film is trying to put yourself back in that time frame. You know, really. Um, yeah. 1902. It is. Yeah. What did we know? What did we not know? What what books had been written prior to this? What what things that we assume as, you know, just common knowledge and part of, you know, I can't even tell you where it comes from because just everybody knows um, that didn't exist then. You know, you know, we all know that there's a limit to the atmosphere and space is a vacuum. When did we know that? I don't know. I have no idea. Well, just, Haven't we just always travel known that? too. Yeah. Like I just I take for granted that uh, like in in the end of May, we're going to fly over to London and see my sister in England. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's just you can do that. Like, this was filmed in a world where if you went from London to you know close to Toronto where I live, that was you know a steamship and probably several weeks train of travel. Yeah, train right? travel and train buggies. Yeah. yeah, but cars were not a thing in 1902. Harley Davidson hadn't been born till 1903. I mean, seriously, we're talking a world I'm having a hard time imagining. A world without Harley Davidson, it might as well have been people I know. living in caves. It was, it was medieval. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, but I mean, again, I just, I can't even really appreciate yeah. what was, not, I don't, I don't have a comprehension of what life was like in 1902. I mean, I it just, is mind blowing when you think of like what, how much has changed in just a hundred years, and like, like it's mind boggling to think. Well, okay, if that level of change just continues at the same pace, how different will things be a hundred years from now? Right, right, and that and that's a false assumption there because it's going to change at a faster pace. Yeah, yeah, exactly. it's it's logarithmic, not a straight line. So yeah, it's. Um, it's insane. It's it, but yeah, and, and it's it's there. There might still people be people alive on Earth right now that were born in 1902. Yeah. Might be one well, or two. <laughs> you, you think somebody who was born in the year that this f- film was was created? They were 67 years old when people actually landed on the moon. Yeah, like in geez. one lifetime from when this, you know, farcical thing of, oh, yeah, like we're ever going to go to the moon. And they went to the moon. <laughs> That's got to be insane. And now we're getting lackadaisical going, yeah, whatever. We don't really care. That's, you know. Yeah, like just, just kind of like continue with that line of talk. Like I remember when I was a kid in high school in the 80s and, uh, you know, science class. And I remember – them talking about well the speed of light and you know like science fiction and travel and just like how you know like look don't be stupid you cannot go faster than the speed of light and now like the speed of light is is now viewed as like well i'm sure there's a way around that right (laughs) that's it it's almost like a given and this is from scientists right yeah you know, like, well, we, no, we don't think we can ex- actually physically accelerate something up to the speed of light. We can't do that. But there's probably a way to circumvent that. Right. That's why I think I tweeted that out on the Sci-Fi Tech Talk uh, Twitter feed that there was a, an article by the BBC explaining why scientists believe that we can't go faster in light, that it really is an absolute speed limit. Um, and, of course, my tagline on the 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 link was never say never <laughs> um, because like you say I mean 
sure, we may not. I mean, that may be an absolute that we can't yeah. do that. But like, but that doesn't mean we can't actually travel faster than speed of light, or you know, get, may be, get distances yeah, may... faster than the speed of light could. Yeah. Just bend space and time, and, and it'll all be fine. Well, or uh, wormholes or yep. whatever else that they might uh, uh, figure out. Yep. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, so never say never. That's the only thing I know. Because at one time, the speed of sound was supposed to be the no one can go faster than it. It's an absolute type of thing. It's like, yeah, whatever, blew through that. <laughs> so, but yeah. Well, I think e- even around roughly 1902, I... Yeah, I'm just kind of recollecting. I don't know exactly when, but uh, or maybe like the mid uh, 1800s when they were doing train travel, they thought that the body couldn't handle speeds above, you know, I don't know, 60 miles an hour or whatever they'd pick for a speed limit. And you know, now we're moving at you know several hundred miles an hour inside you know uh, planes. But even people at free fall, can free fall and parachute and survive. Uh, but they're traveling at whatever you know terminal velocity is. I don't know what it is right offhand, but you know they can travel at that speed. So there's a lot of assumptions that was made once upon a time, and then we realize, oh no, that's you know not right. You know, in in 1902, the fastest anybody on Earth had probably traveled might have been like 30 miles an hour. Uh, barring any sort of explosion. No. How fast had- did trains go? They had, yeah, they had steam locomotives that I'm sure went. Do you think they went faster than that? I would guess 60 miles an hour. Okay. You think so? uh, In 1902? Yeah. Because that would have been the the top speed. I mean, whatever trains were doing in 1902, that would have been it because cars were not a thing at at that point. So without trains, the fastest any human being really goes is like 20, 25, maybe 30 on a really fast horse. For like a quarter mile, you know, that's it. Uh, oh, okay. Wait. Twenty sixth of April, nineteen o two. This is just a really quick uh, sure. What uh, you got? Search in Google if I can find it. Uh, okay, so nineteen o two. There was a long distance train world record set. Uh, covered the distance of 184 miles in three hours. So that was 60 miles an hour. Yeah, yep, so roughly 60 well, miles an hour. And then I just googled uh, land speed records, and in uh, April uh, 13th and August 5th of 1902, there was uh, w- uh, both in France they set a vehicle speed record of 75. Okay, well, hour. we're starting to get some serious speed there. I mean, that's... 76, that's, yeah. I mean, because, uh, again, prior to, like, steam power, the fastest anybody on Earth would have ever gone at the max would have been 30 miles an hour, probably closer to 2025. 20, I mean, horses will do 2025 20, for a while, but, you know, yeah, it's... Um, so the idea of you know saying that we were going to go, what the hell do rockets go? Like I don't know, eighteen thousand miles a second, or I don't know whatever it is. But um, it's just no, just obviously that's ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> and so yeah, so so for those people born in nineteen o two in their lifetimes, I mean, what a fantastical time 
I mean, I like the time I'm born in, <laughs> although may you live in interesting times has, you know, <laughs> kind of been my lifetime. But um, to see those changes, to go from a world with no electricity and no running water, really, and no form of transportation. I mean, you would have had to have walked to the train station or rode a, a horse to the train station. And, and then to see, you know, cars, I mean, everybody's so dependent upon cars and, and um you know, and you mentioned airplanes going to overseas, and the idea—I mean, I, every now and then I get on a plane, like go to the West Coast or something. And so you travel fifteen hundred, two thousand miles, and go. You know, that is really kind of insane. You get on a chair and go up into the sky, and a couple hours later, you are on the other side of the continent, which, you know, a hundred years ago would have taken you three or four months, and you would have endured, you know, all well, kinds of hardships. Louis- Louis C.K. has a thing about flying from New York to L.A. Yep. on a plane where somebody's complaining that they didn't, they don't give out peanuts anymore. And he said, "You're complaining about not getting a pack of peanuts when you're doing a trip where you're you're inside a an aluminum tube. You're traveling so f- on a trip that 150 years ago would have taken months and people would have died." Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yep, uh, and you would have uh, been risking frostbite or heat stroke or you know all kinds of stuff and eaten and by you're mosquitoes. That they don't have peanuts. peanuts. Yeah, I. That's exactly it. Um, so the fact that we have gotten to the point where we bitch about peanuts shows just how far we've come, I suppose, because it's so routine that it's um, you know we we can worry about well, minor details. Just looking at these land speed records here. And uh, the first one they have here is uh, 1898, and that was 39 miles an hour. And then look at how that fast year, that went up. Oh yeah, yeah. Just from we got about six records here from uh, 1898 to 1904. They started out 39, and by 1904 they uh, had one over 90 miles uh, an hour. Yeah, they're approaching 100 miles an hour. That's insane. So in the space of what about six years? Yeah, roughly. I- uh, it tripled almost. And and when you see how, how fast those speed records go up, and then I bet if you look at them, then they start to plateau, you could totally see why, oh, well, yeah, obviously we can't go faster than the speed of sound. That must be, that obviously must be a limit, right? Right. Because right. you had this huge curve at the start of like, you know, breaking speed records every year and in, you know, but, uh, motorcycles, cars, trains, all, you know, faster, faster, faster. And then, you're gaining less and less and less as wind resistance becomes more of an issue, and, and I'm, you know, I'm sure that there's other factors as well. And then uh, I, I can totally see how if you're in that situation, you can just kind of extrapolate it out and say, well, I guess the limit must be the speed of sound, right? Yeah. See, and this is why I like this film. We have just talked for I don't know how many minutes. Well, nothing to do with this film, but it, this film challenges you to think back to where we came from, to the beginnings of science fiction, to the beginnings of, you know, essentially the 20th century, where, you know, so many advances were done, whether in filmmaking or in science or in science fiction. Um, it's just, it's night and day. Uh, we, I, it also makes you think, like, I wonder how we're limiting ourselves in yes. our thinking today, not just in in science, but like in, in social things. Well, like, you know, look, people very, not very many years ago at all, the idea of 
well, gay marriage, that will just tear the fabric of society apart, you know. And, you know, really, what difference is that making to anybody? No, other than the fact that gay people can get married now, good for them. You know, like, what difference did it make? Yeah. Yeah, and there's so many things that we just assume or we don't even know we do that, like, 100 years from now, we'll be looking back going, you know, like, 100 years ago, slavery was a relatively recent memory. You know, and now we're like, what? No, just no. I mean, and and like, I don't know, racism. I mean, segregation was a thing, and you know, all the, you know, the the Indian wars had just happened. I mean, just things that we are like, what? Um, and so, people a hundred years from now are going to look back at 2017 and go, what the hell were you people thinking? You know, um, so yeah, it'll be. History's an, an interesting judge, um, so it's uh, like I say. That's uh, that's what I like about this movie. As much as the movie itself is fun, watch it is a fun watch. It's still, I mean, it's a silent film. It's it's hokey as hell, but it's um, amusing, and it tells a story, and it's a familiar story. It's not one where you don't. It's so unfamiliar and so out of context of where we are now that you don't even know what they're trying to tell you. Um, but so this, it's a familiar story and it's, it's just, um, you know, it, it kind of takes you back to what, you know, what context was this being shown in? What context was this being made in? You know, what was the standard? They talk about some of the special effects, like the, the classic shot of the moon at a distance and then getting closer and closer so you can see his face and then of course the bullet comes and smacks him in the eye that was actually kind of a revolutionary uh, filmmaking thing because the cameras back then were so heavy that you couldn't move the camera rather than putting the camera on a dolly they put the actor on a chair on a dolly on a rail and pulled the actor closer to the camera (laughs) Um, yeah so I mean stuff like that it's like we were like, really? Because, you know, I got a camera in my phone. You know, <laughs> I can just <laughs> flip it on at the grocery store and do, and do films that in 1902 took, you know, like massive engineering to accomplish. Um, so, yeah, it's... Well, it, and let's not forget on certain phones, you have like super slow-mo now. Oh, heck, so, I mean, this is... <laughs> my pictures take videos. My pictures take, you know... Um, pictures that are worthy of Harry Potter's mag or newspapers. You know, it's not just a picture; it moves. So, um, it's it's yeah. The I don't even know what kind of camera you did. I mean, I keep thinking of one on a like a tripod or it wasn't even a tripod. I think they had four legs, and you threw the hood over your thing, and you held up the little bulb, and it went poof. You know. Um, and they talked about that the the studios at that time, photography studios and therefore film studios, were essentially greenhouses because they were made of glass to bring in as much light as possible. You didn't have electricity for a lot of these things, okay? No, you don't, it, didn't have, it, you're trying to make a film without electricity. Uh, what? And they were talking about their filming uh, schedule in here. So mornings were probably like uh, writing and then peak sun period is when they would be doing their filming. And then after that had passed and they would do their editing or something. So they had a, a schedule that they followed 
based upon the cycle of the sun nowadays it's like you know because as we record this we've just come off of in the uh, the united states here except for uh arizona we've come off of daylight savings time and you know this is one of the things that we talk about all the time is why do we have daylight savings time now because we're a 24 hour you know society we got lights we can you know it, once upon a time, it was to save electricity or to save oil or whatever. Uh, now it's you know why do we even bother with this? Because we're a twenty four seven society. But you, you think and you know like I say making movies, uh, yeah, making movies without electricity because uh, electricity wasn't really a thing, not a usable thing. Right. Bad and I thing. Think we'll ever, Correction uh, we'll too. Move to universal time. <sighs> Correction too. We've come on to daylight savings time. It just started. Right. Whichever. Yep. It's annoying yep. as crap. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I absolutely yeah. love daylight savings time because I really hate sunshine at four a.m. Um, well, and I much it. prefer it at ten p.m. Well, it, it's like it, the joke we tell in this country that uh, you know something about the. Um, Daylight savings time is like uh, uh, the Indian cutting one end off of his blanket and sewing it on the other to make it longer. Uh, you know, it doesn't make any doesn't make any difference. Um, I'm not going to start that debate, but you were about to say something. No, Jeff. right, right. Yeah. Do you guys ever think we will go to uh, universal, universal time? time? You know, they tried that a few years ago, and and we, yeah, I don't know. I live in a twenty. I don't live in a twenty-four-seven world. None of us do because you try work a night shift and find out how easy it is to live in that. Um, we are still very much an eight-to-five society. That's actually goes back to the daylight savings time argument. But um, if you ever work on a different shift, and you guys both do, so you know yes. this, when you are off that schedule. You are not – there are parts of society that you no longer have access to, stuff going on in the evening that you can't participate in, stuff you know, th- th- that on uh, weekends or whatever that happens that if you're, you have like weekend shifts that you can't participate in. So we do operate 24-7, but we are not a 24-7 society but, yet. But um, who's to say that like – you know why everybody on on earth has to get up at five o'clock in the morning when the sun comes up you know like why why can't sunrise be at 7 p.m right you know it just say okay like england is you know time zero so yep. that's when you know the you know sun comes up in the morning and you're just time shifted so you just get used to the fact that uh okay your, your, the first half of your day is Tuesday. The second half of the day becomes Friday. Like it does seem Wednesday. like things like, like noon is an antiquated idea. My, my mother and yeah. I have this argument. She's she's like noon is when the sun is straight up in the sky. It's like no, noon is when you know that would you could describe that perhaps as midday, but it's not necessarily noon. Noon is when we have said it's noon. You know, we just arbitrarily moved noon by an hour. Um, so time is an artificial creation. Um, we, it is a man-made thing. So if we wanted to switch time to, I, there was a, a point where they were talking about metric time. So you'd have perhaps two 10-hour segments, you know, so it would wind up being a 20-hour day. Um, you would have, you know, t- 100 minutes in an hour, 100 seconds in a minute, you know, because those are well, just arbitrary I don't things. Think, I don't think that's... That's useful. I mean, it like might. The, it, the, it is if you in, use computers. In a, <laughs> in, a, in a global world, like the thing is, you you guys are in a different time zone than I. Right. I am. So, oh, like, yeah. anytime we talk, like you know, for recording today, even though I screwed that up for a, <laughs> a different reason today, <laughs> but uh, 
like I always have to when you guys are talking about time, I always have to adjust at an hour for me. Right. Um, well, in a global world, like when I was in the army, anytime you send out a memo that is going outside of how did it work? And it's going outside of your time zone. You have to have the time in Zulu time, right. which is the time it is in in. England, Greenwich, right? England, yep. UTC. So, yeah, so all of the clocks on the wall and in, a, in a, you know, the way we used to do it anyways, beside the clock, there was always something taped there that said, you know, during the summer, Zulu time is, you know, plus five hours and during the winter is plus four or whatever the thing right. is, right? And so, yeah, so like, I guess... Do we? Or if you're, if you're just dealing with, with people in your local area, it doesn't make sense to ever change, to ever go to that kind of universal time. But I bet like as business becomes more and more globalized, I bet that universal time will become more and more important because we'll, I, you know, I agree. Yeah. I, I think, I, I, I think I what think will happen well, yeah. is that we will do parallels because what I, I already think, do. Yes, yeah, I already yeah, do. I right. I'm like, um, because I kind of live in that global 24 7 world i mean well like there it is in canada so when i was a kid in both time zones it's like yeah. it is you know 6 p.m central time or you know 12 utc um yeah. so um the, the the running them parallel and what will happen the the shift is going to come when we start defaulting to utc yeah. because at least now most people still operate local they they're not on twenty four seven. They they don't deal with things. I mean, I can tell you the number of people like when we schedule webinars, which are available globally. The number of people who show up an hour late or an hour early because they screwed up the time zone is just it's like really. Um, so until we get comfortable, until we have those in parallel long enough, so that when and we haven't in the U.S. at least we haven't even been able to master that in the metric system. Um, you well, know, like when somebody when we says to the metric, uh, 10 kilometers, system, we can't do that. Uh, in, when we went to the metric system in Canada when I was a kid, we still do that parallel thing with uh, certain like weight and length. So like I don't know anybody that refers to their weight in kilograms. Mm-hmm. But yet if I'm going to buy stuff at the grocery store, you talk about kilograms. Um, Britain's the same I way. They talk about yeah. it in stones. Um, and yeah. they talk about miles, and it's like, wait, I remember when I was over there, I was so confused. I'm like, I thought you guys were running the metric system, and occasionally they'd, I'd just be completely confused as to what was going on. Are we on miles or kilometers? I don't know. So until, I mean, and, and until you're fluent in both of those, you know, time-wise, we will continue to, you know, default to the one we're most familiar with most comfortable with but we will as we get more fluent in utc time you know would there be a reason to do away with local time i mean or would just running them in parallel always be an option i don't know Boy, it's an interesting are. question and i think it i think it would take multiple generations to I do too. for that Yep. Happen, yeah. And we are so far, we are really off on tangents with this movie <laughs> today. It's kind of fun, actually. But, <laughs> but yeah. I love the idea that this movie shows the, the moon is made of cheese. <laughs> and it's, and so it's it, like gooey cheese because it drips. So what you're saying is the, the moon is from Wisconsin then? Yeah, sure. Somebody yeah. took a, a, you know, a cheese head thingy and threw it up in the sky and it's been there ever since. 
So the moon is a Green Bay Packers fan. That's oh, it. God. You got it. <laughs> well, it's green cheese, don't you know? Yeah. <laughs> Which is maybe why they didn't pack any food because they would, you know, they could just eat. Eat, oh, yeah. the moon. eat the moon. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like I say, the, the lack of planning here. Again, it's a Fargo movie. I'm not holding yeah. anything to any sort of standards, but I did have to sit there and go, "Wow, lack of planning." I would have at least, you know, had an escape plan other than just jumping off. Uh, yeah. To me, it, it, the lack of planning wasn't so much about food, but the fact that I mean, at least the way it's depicted in the movie, this is just a a. A bullet shell. I mean, it's there, and there's nothing. There's not even chairs in it. I mean, you you honestly don't see them like sit down in it. You see them enter it, but you don't see them in this thing. It's like I, so obviously that's not something they were concerned about in this. Um, they just they were just trying to tell a story. And you know, sure. we we talk about this with other movies though too, where occasionally you just let them get away with stuff because you want to. It it it's in, unimportant to the story that they're trying to tell, you know. And and this one definitely has a bunch of that, um, right. where it's it's not so much that you know their means of transportation is is laughable and and the aliens on the on the moon are ridiculous and and look like something that you know would have been thought of as you know pygmies from Africa at the time. Um, so it's but. The fact that it tells a story, and then, and at least in 2017, it's a familiar story, and it's a story that is still being told. Um, truly, I mean, this story of expedition from Earth, go to the, to go to, go to space and meet aliens, and you know, all of that is that that literally almost defines mm-hmm. science fiction. Um, so, you know, I'll give them a thumbs up for the story they told. Oh, Whether they were oh, poking sure. fun at stuff or not, it was a good story. Oh yeah, and I'm not mocking them. And I yeah. think you know they 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 wanted to have fun with the movie, and I'm having fun with you know looking at what they were saying and doing and all this other kind of stuff. And you know, like I say, yeah, we do need to honor this because this was you know as far as I can tell, the first science fiction movie. It planted the seed and inspired a lot of people. I mean, you know, we went from movies like this to you know 2001, the Star Wars to you know the Star Trek movies. Uh, so this was, you know, very uh, inspirational uh, and innovational in a lot of ways. And, you know, I think that's what we're doing here today is we're just we're, we're having fun with it like we're supposed to be doing. Uh, but, we're you know, we're honoring it for giving us that starting the, uh, us out in that direction in, in filmmaking and the kind of things that are possible. And just you don't have to take things so seriously just because it doesn't exist doesn't mean you can't. You know, create it, imagine it, and have some fun with it. Right. And the director, George, as we're referring to him, um, <laughs> created other movies. This wasn't like his only one either. So um, the, the he actually didn't think this was his best work. Um, and I honestly haven't chased down any of his other ones. And I know some are actually lost to history um, at this point. Uh, we know they exist, but we don't have copies of them. So um, it would be interesting to see how different or similar this is to some of the other things he did. Because obviously this is the one we all remember. I don't, I mean, when you say the name, George Melez or whatever his name is, um, you know, you don't come up with a list of, of you know, films that, that he made. Um, so it's, uh, 
it would, it would be interesting to see what the other ones were if they were also somewhat comedies like this one was and or obviously they could I I don't believe that there are any science other science fiction ones cuz we probably would have heard about those um so yeah well there's three of his movies listed in IMDb here the kingdom of the fairies which i'm going to guess is sort of a uh fantasy type thing impossible voyage i don't know exactly what that is. And then The Barber of Seville, which would be – sounds kind of like an opera. Because, yeah, and if you were making films in 1902, would you not be – because you don't have a film genre. You don't know what a film is. You don't know what a movie is. They weren't even called movies. They were called I don't know, moving pictures. Um, and so – they were taking things like um, I think we used the word cabaret earlier, and you know stage performances, and just basically putting a, a camera on those. And that was and and you didn't have. I mean, there's a reason this is 15 minutes, two hours of film, huh? Who the hell would sit? St- I mean, it's kind of like what they're talking about TV. Who the hell's going to sit in their living room all night and watch a box? You know. So um, <laughs> have I told you about H and I Channel? Anyway, um, so. Um, the idea that a movie should be two hours just didn't uh, that, that was an invention that it was a long time down the road yet so I mean this one is actually a very lengthy film being at 15 minutes well yeah and you know I kind of wanted to bring up too that um, you know this is a silent movie so you can put whatever music you want behind it well the one that they're showing on Netflix has some pretty trippy music uh behind it. I was thinking about, you know, playing, I didn't know if they were going to have music or not, if it was just going to be silent. I was thinking about playing like Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon while listening to this, but <laughs> the uh, the stuff that they had in there was, uh, it was kind of interesting. It started out like, you know, um, you know, an acid trip or something like that. Some of that music was kind of weird and stuff, but by the time you get to the end, I mean, I was, uh, the stuff they played in the last few minutes, or was just kind of like, you know, I'm kind of getting into that just uh, slightly so uh, the music that they used for this uh, presentation of I thought was certainly somewhere between amusing and interesting okay correct me if I'm wrong but in 1902 the music would not have been included in the film Nope. It would have been maybe sent out a score that, I mean, like Fargo Theater here, our, our historic theater, has an orchestra pit. Um, so they would have said, here's the music that goes with this film. Um, and, yeah, somebody could have chosen different music. You know, if you could choose to play yep. that. And, and one orchestra versus another orchestra might play that music differently. Um, so... You know, yeah, we there's another thing that we just assume. You know, the music was d- defined and, and decided by, well, not even the director, but you know, a, no. a, a person whose specialty is music for films. Um, and that just wasn't even the thing in 1902. I mean, maybe you, maybe they created special music for the a film, but maybe they just grabbed you know whatever was popular well, at the time or an old folk song or something and said, play that while this is going on. Or maybe the guy in the orchestra pit ab-libbed the whole darn thing. That's completely <laughs> possible, too. And the orchestras that came with movie theaters at that time, too, it could have been an actual orchestra, you know, thinking of 40 people or so, or it could have been like three guys with a washed-up band. I mean, it, it would have <laughs> depended on the local theater. 
Right. Well, it says here that uh, uh, George never required a specific musical score to be used, allowing exhibitors freedom to choose whatever accompaniment they felt suitable. Uh, when it was screened one place, uh, uh, well, anyway, but then uh, I think in 1903, an English composer, Ezra Reed, uh, published a piano piece called A Trip to the Moon, which follows the film scene by scene as often used for the score at the time. So it was like a post-production thing that, you know, you could, like like you were saying, you could throw in whatever you want. But there was, you know, uh, some music written for it, which um, I don't know. I don't want to go out in the film. Uh, tr- uh, let me say this is the first soundtrack, but... Um, it had to be among the first, I would assume, but uh, but somebody after the fact had written some music for it. Yeah. Like I say, it's really hard to put yourself back in that context in 1902 and what this film meant at that time. I mean, we know what it means to us now. It is a, a an important film. Matter of fact, it was listed as one of the 84, I think it was, most important moments in film history. Um and as far as science fiction goes, I think it's got a place there too. Um, but you know, in 1902, you you had orchestra pits. You did not have cars. You, the fastest speed was you know 60 miles an hour, and which was just recent because it was you know a couple of years ago just 35 miles an hour, you know, and that type of stuff. And and um, you know, electricity wasn't there, and cameras were heavy and stationary, and you know, just, just and and people wore long skirts and um, top hats. The top hats that were shown in the in the uh, movie were the fashion of the time, I believe. And, and you know, just... And I, I just don't have an appreciation of what life was like in 1902. I mean, I have to strip away so much of what I'm familiar with that... And in 1902, where I live... Oh, dear... Um, you know, yeah. So uh, lynching was probably still a thing at that time. Oh so. yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and something else that we take for granted, and this film did. Um, there was color to this film uh, because it was hand colored. You know, now everything is in you know Technicolor or whatever process they're using now. You know, actually f- colored film, but this was black and white film that was hand painted. And I was trying to uh, see. Uh, see here, there was 200 people painting directly on the film stock with brushes in colors that uh, was chosen. Each worker was assigned a different color in assembly line style with more than 20 separate colors often used for a single film. Uh, so basically, one person had one color, and they just send the film on down the line fr- uh, frame by frame, and they painted it in. That had to be a horrible job. <laughs> Had Ford had Ford invented the assembly line yet? I I know. I think, I think so. Yeah, it um, would have been recent. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, let's see. Yeah, we had the. Uh, I mean, honestly, painting film makes in an assembly line fashion makes a lot of sense because if you've got twenty colors in it. You know, the alternative is have one person with 20 brushes dipped into 20 colors, which by the time you get done with the 20th color, the first color is ruined. It's dried up and gotten gunky and whatever. So, yeah, I mean, the idea of having one person per color and just pass it down the line. Um, well, a, a quick, you know, Google search here. 
Ford didn't start his uh, automobile assembly line. Maybe he had the idea kicking around for a while until 1913. But yeah. I, I imagine the idea of you know linear you know assembly work like that must have been kicked around at, well, you know, at some point. As happens with all inventions, and especially when they are attributed to one person, um, it was kind of common knowledge and the next thing that was going to happen in the culture anyway. So, you know, the fact that these guys were kind of doing it prior to Ford taking it and owning it um, is not surprising. So, yeah. it's But but it is an interesting way to do to do film. Uh, I, you know, I, I wonder how common that process was at that time. Uh, eh. Let's see. I, th- I think they said here only like 4% of uh, George's films was... Uh, had color to them, so it wasn't thing, a thing they did very often. Yeah, and I wonder how unique George was as compared to other filmmakers, too. Yeah, because that's kind of crazy when you think about it, because you, you all know how many you know frames per second go to make a, a film, even a choppy, crappy, silent film. So, I mean, that's yeah. a lot of frames to be painted. Uh, I guess there was only 60 hand-colored copies of this film put out. Wow, which makes sense, because there you go. That's the flip side. You didn't just send this out on the Internet and it showed up around the world. You had to copy the film and color each copy and and take it by pony um, to the next town or next theater. And, you know, yeah, I mean, we had film, you know, a physical thing that had to be distributed by hand under certain conditions because film was somewhat fragile, too. So, you know, yeah, I mean, again, I can't, I have a hard time putting myself in the, in the context of 1902 and what it would take to both produce and distribute a film. You know, it's, it's just kind of mind-blowing. Uh, and at the beginning of this film, when you watch it, there's a, a little paragraph to read there. And they said they, this film had been forgotten and they found, you know, a copy of it and they restored it the best that they could. And... If there was scenes, if there was frames that was, you know, not uh, able to be reproduced, not able to be copied, they didn't try to reproduce it. They just took it out. So they tried to use original stuff. They didn't try to, you know, fit anything else in there. They tried to keep it as original as possible and not, you know, they would clean it up. They would try to make it look better, but they didn't try to add anything to it. So they they kept this as uh, original as possible, you know, to the fact of leaving out stuff that wasn't, they weren't able to uh, get in there. Right. Makes sense. Good choice. I mean, I, that's a, a a good choice, I think, given how, you know, the, the way the film is anyway. So, well, we've talked around everything, including the film. <laughs> <laughs> Any final words about a trip to the moon? Any tech that uh, you would want? Uh, a, uh, a bullet shot in the space? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm iffy on that because I just, I, you know, in the movie it looks cool. In real life, we would just be a blood splatter at the back. So I think I might avoid that one. Actually, maybe what I want is aliens that go poof when you touch them. So, sure. Yeah. <laughs> How's that? Then we don't have to light fires like we do in every other movie. <laughs> huh. Interesting. It is, a, if you have not seen this, get on it because um, 15 minutes uh, do it It's. I mean I kind of have this love-hate relationship with the Beatles I don't necessarily like their music but I respect it and I understand its place in history and I you know I, I listen to it because I 
it's the Beatles. Um, I think this film is kind of the same thing. Whether or not you like it, whether or not it's good, you know, whether or not it's a good story or realistic science or whatever, it doesn't matter. You need to have seen this movie. It's one of those things that you you need to have direct experience with, I think. So, um, yeah, I actually watched it on YouTube. You said it's available on Netflix, so there's no excuse. It's everywhere. So, that's going to wrap up this episode of Sci-Fi Tech Talk. You can uh, check us out at scifitechtalk.com or pop into the forums there and take part in the conversation. You can follow us on Twitter at scifitechtalk. And if you have ideas or comments, please send them to greetings at scifitechtalk.com. And, of course, reviews on iTunes are always welcome, and we sure could use some of those. Uh, Jeff, where can folks find you? People can follow me on Twitter at broncosire. That's S-Y-E-R. And, Mike, where can people find you? Uh, I can be found on Twitter at DSC Chipman, and I have my about.me page at about.me slash Mike McPeak. That's M-C-P-E-E-K. And I can be found on Twitter at Julie Keel, J-U-L-I-E-K-U-E-H-L. And links to my other blogs, podcasts, and whatever else I've got going on can be found at about.me slash Julie Keel. Next episode, we're going to be covering the 2014 book, The Abyss Beyond Dreams. Um, The year is 3326. Nigel Sheldon, one of the founders of the Commonwealth, receives a visit from the Rael. Um, Self-appointed guardians of the void, the enigmatic construct at the core of the galaxy that threatens the existence of all that lives. The Rael convince Nigel to participate in a desperate scheme to infiltrate the void. Once inside, Nigel discovers that humans are not the only life forms to have been sucked into the void, where the laws of physics are subtly different and mental powers are indistinguishable from magic are commonplace. The humans trapped there are afflicted by an alien species of biological mimics, the fallers, that are intelligent but merciless killers. Yet these same aliens may hold the key to destroying the threat of the void forever, if Nigel can uncover their secrets. As the fallers' relentless attacks continue and the fragile human society splinters into civil war, Nigel must uncover the secrets of the fallers before he is killed by the very people he has come to save. That's it for this show, though. We'll see you in the future. Question matters matter. Question matters matter. Yes, the sci-fi text on matters matter.